The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of our Bible study tonight is Desperate Worship. Uh, As I was uh, looking at a number of books, I noticed that there was one titled, How to Be Right 50% of the Time. I was thinking I'm already doing that pretty well without reading a book. to be right 50% of the time. But then I thought, maybe I'll buy two books, and that way I can be right 100% of the time. Anyways, something for you to think about as we look at this tonight. So desperate worship, Danny, what do you mean by desperate worship? I mean that there are those circumstances and situations that come into our lives that cause us to come to Jesus in a way that we wouldn't normally, we wouldn't typically come to him. It's nothing that we would volunteer for. It's nothing that we would necessarily want to happen. But the byproduct of these situations is that it brings us to Christ, which is the right thing to do, is what he would want us to do, and that as we come to him, we derive strength from him. That when we come to him repeatedly in this this time of desperation, of seriousness, something happens within us. Certainly we want our prayer requests answered, And hopefully that happens, but really what happens is that we're changed over time. And and, and I was thinking today that every time we come to worship, we change. Uh, Every time we go to the scriptures on our own or in Bible study and a gathering, we are changed. Every time we pray, we are changed. Uh, A famous preacher, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, shared with the time that He was traveling throughout Europe. He was an English preacher in London, but he was traveling through Europe. And for some reason, he found himself in this very, very old cemetery. And and there, as he was, you know, looking at these ornate tombstones, he noticed that there was a slab of granite that had fallen down. Again, they're very old, right? And that, that apparently... Uh, an acorn had fallen into the crack of, of, of this slab of granite. And over the years, it had taken root. And now a tree, a tree was in the middle of this, of this slab. And it ha- was lifting it up and separating it. And, and I want you to think about this. That each time you pray, each time you worship, whether you feel like something is happening or not, you're not unlike that acorn that that over time the roots go down and the, the tree comes up and that, that situation may or may not change, but you are changing. You are being transformed. And that is what happens throughout the Christian life. You know, you stop and you think about an acorn, the potential, the potential in that situation, in that circumstance, in that faith that God is growing in your life. We might see an acorn, and, and, and some would see, well, you know, maybe squirrel food. Uh, and, and somebody else might see a forest. And somebody else might see the potential for out of one acorn for the entire earth to be filled with trees. So when we think of desperate worship, I want you to think about that situation or that circumstance that you may or not, may not have experienced thus far in your life, but potentially it will come, and it will drive us to Jesus. Again, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, and those of you that know me are thinking already, this is a lot of 
material, Danny, for you to cover and then to observe worship or uh, communion. And we'll, we'll see how we'll do. I believe that worship is personal. I have a strong conviction that we can go to churches throughout our community and even our country and the world and see people who worship differently. There are people who worship in silence. That is, between them and God, they remain silent. At least from the outward, that is the appearance, but something very powerful is going on from within. We can go on the other end of the spectrum and find churches that are very demonstrative, very lively, where the expression of worship has volume to it and passion and, and, and all kinds of expressions of worship in between. People worship differently. And it's never our place to say that is correct and right worship and, and, and that is wrong worship. It's, it is our place to honor those who worship the way they seem seems right to them. I want you to know tonight that the gospel records the accounts of those who found the ground at Jesus' feet to be sacred, even holy. Driven by great need, their outward posture revealed heartfelt desperation. I'm going to share with you a couple of examples now. I want you to think about Jairus, the respected synagogue official who was face down in the dirt asking Jesus to come to his home to heal his daughter who was in the moment dying. I too want you to think of the woman whose body was bleeding continually for 12 years. Can you imagine? And within her heart, her faith said if she would but touch the outer cloak of Jesus's, uh, touch Jesus's cloak, and she desired to do so, listen, secretly, she desired to do so without anybody else knowing, let alone Jesus. And yet when she was discovered, she fell to the ground and worshiped. Thirdly, think too of the man who returned to Jesus to express gratitude from being healed from leprosy. Jesus had come to a group of lepers and they were crying out to him at some distance. Jesus, heal us. And, and in this time, he decided, Jesus said, well, go show yourself. And while these 10 disciples were making their way to the priest, it, they discovered that they were healed. We're not told when they were healed, it, only that while they were walking, while they were traveling, and out of the 10, there was only one who would come and cast himself at Jesus' feet again, sacred ground, holy ground, and worship Jesus. The writer of the gospel is careful to tell us that only one returned to give thanks, and he, a Samaritan or an outcast. And then there's a woman with a sinful reputation who at a dinner slipped into the room and found herself at Jesus' feet as he reclined at the table. And so great was her gratitude for Jesus and the fact that he would forgive her sins that we're told, I can't imagine what this looked like. I really can't. I tried to. I tried to press in to see this in my mind. But it says that with her tears, she washed Jesus' feet. And with her hair, she let down her hair, a symbol of humility, and that she dried, dried them. Interesting. Remember I said we can't judge another's worship. 
But the host of that dinner thought to himself that if Jesus knew what kind of woman that was that was touching him, that he would have nothing to do with it. And Jesus, listen, Jesus corrected him. We're told from her example that those who are forgiven much love much. The story of Jesus tells us of those who exhausted all other options and that they were driven to his feet in worship. Yes, desperate worship. And I want to remind you tonight that these folks, these individuals, these stories, these accounts are your guideposts and my guideposts when we experience difficult times. I would even say that over the course of the opportunity for me to be a pastor, that there are people like this among us tonight. I don't know specific stories, but there are people in our midst who have found life dealing them a very difficult situation and circumstance, and who found themselves at Jesus' feet in desperate worship, and they are with us even tonight. This reminds us that the Jesus of the Mount of Transfiguration that we studied a number of Bible studies ago is equally glorified in the valley of suffering. Let me say that again, that the Jesus who was glorified on the great mountain seen by three of the disciples is just as glorified in the valley of suffering. Tonight I want you to think of worship that has no music. Worship that has no accompaniment. I want you to think of a worship that has no words. Sans lyrics. I want you to think of a worship that flows from the heart of a person to their God in a moment of great pain. In the book of Job, we have a man who is presented to us as being righteous. Not perfect, but righteous. A a man who who very carefully worshipped God through the course of his life and experienced material blessing. And then one day there's a knock on the door. And the door opens and there's a messenger, a servant standing before him. And he said, today as your servants were watching over your livestock, these enemies came in and they stole them away. Then another, even as that man's report is coming to conclusion, the last word is coming out of his mouth, there comes another, like the waves of the sea, another individual knocking on the door and saying, today, as we were watching over, you know, this this, this other part of your property, the enemy came and he stole it away. And again, as he concluded his report, lastly, there came a servant who said, your family had gathered for a feast and a wind came, a storm came. And the house collapsed, and you lost all of your family. And listen to what, listen to what the writer of Job says. It says, then Job, this will be on the screen. Job arose, tore his garment, that is, he rent his cloak, an outward sign of a broken heart. And he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he worshipped God. Incredible. In Psalm 23, David tells us 
that when we're surrounded by darkness, you know this verse, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In our story tonight, again, we see Jesus' glory revealed in his delivering a tormented boy from evil. We also see his glory as Jesus will honor the faith of a man who's honest enough to say, I believe, help my unbelief, help me in my doubting, help me in my, help me in my lesser than perfect faith. But we're going to begin tonight with a conflict at the base of the mountain, the very same mountain that Jesus was transfigured or glorified. It's an argument of sorts. I want you to see on the screen this this statement. Theological discussion is talking about God. That's what we'll see here initially. Desperate worship is not talking about God, but talking or speaking to God. We begin in the valley, verses 14 through 29. In verses 14 through 18, we have the problem, the problem, the challenge. You and I have the problem, the challenge, the situation that seems insurmountable. And we come to God again and again, like the acorn that's growing. We come to God again and again, and we pray, and we pray. And if you're anything like me, there's times when the prayer is very uh, impactful. It's, it's sensational. It's, it's moving. And then there's other times when I sit before the Lord and I say, Lord, I'm coming to you again. I'm using the same words, and I'm doing my best, but you need to help me. So tonight we see, in verse, beginning in verse 14, the problem. Read along with me, if you will, where it says, Mark tells us, And when they came to the disciples, they saw, they behold, at a distance, a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that is Jesus, listen to these words, they were greatly amazed. They were literally surprised by the fact that Jesus would appear. And in response, they ran up to him and greeted him, welcomed him, likely saying, Shalom, the greeting in Israel, Shalom. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone in the crowd answered, teacher, rabbi. It's a term of honor and respect. I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Mark that in your mind. He has a spirit, an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, a demonic spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes or controls him, notice its power over the boy. It throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And here's the problem. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. The idea is that the man came looking for Jesus. The man came looking for Jesus. He had heard that Jesus could help him. This fueled his faith. This encouraged him. He heard that Jesus was in the area. So he comes looking for Jesus. And instead of finding Jesus, he finds the disciples that were left behind. We heard that the disciples were his students, his they were, his, they were his, those who were following him for some period of time. And then we see the problem when it says, your disciple, I came to ask your disciples to cast it out, that is, this demon. And they were not able. 
And that, my friends, is the problem. They were unable. I'll say it a little different way, maybe not as kind. They were powerless. They didn't have the ability in and of themselves to help my son. I want to begin by saying that the gospel writers present encountering evil as something that's common, even something to be expected. But what do we do with that? What do we do with these stories in the scripture where these confrontations of of Christ and and, and demonic spirits, where, where, where the kingdom of God as it spreads is encountering individuals under the power of darkness and of evil? What do we what do we do with that? What do we do when we look around our world and we see these, these, well, we can't see them, we see the results. We see the results of evil moving in, as invisible currents in our midst and around us. Most likely, just like this father, in the lives of people we love and we care about, what do we do? Danny, we pray, absolutely. Danny, we talk to them about the gospel, yes. But what do we do? Our story suggests that the disciples had previously delivered people from demonic affliction. I'm going to give you two verses, both from the Gospel of Mark, mostly because it's easier to me. We could find other verses and other passages. But these disciples knew what it was like to come upon an individual who would, what we terminology that is sometimes used in the church, come upon an individual, and as they were preaching, as they were ministering, that person like the man in the synagogue in Capernaum, would manifest or physically manifest a spiritual entity and that the disciples knew what to do. In fact, Mark chapter 3, I'm going to read to you two verses and then another verse from Mark 6. And this is when Jesus selected the twelve. So Mark 3, beginning in verse 14, it says, When he, Jesus, appointed 12, he selected 12. I I want you to know that these 12 were selected after spending a night in prayer, after spending a night with the Father. But what did he select them for? So that they might be with him. That is, that they might accompany him. They might spend time with him. They might learn from him. They might observe him. And then secondly, that he might send them out to preach. Verse 15 that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This is why Jesus selected the twelve. Not the only purpose, but a good part. They would be extension of his ministry. Then in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, this is after the twelve had been sent out two by two. It says, and this is kind of a report or a summarization of their uh, ministry efforts. It says, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I want you to think of the disciples as being just like you and just like me. And if you see their interaction between one another, it's easy to identify with them. But Jesus gave them authority over these demonic spirits. It wasn't their authority, it was his authority. The disciples didn't go looking for demons, but when they encountered evil, as representatives of Jesus, they had power over them. And I think initially, this is speculation on my behalf, 
I think that first individual that they encountered, and then they thought, what would Jesus do? And then they speak to it, and it, 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 it released the individual. I don't think there was anybody more surprised than the disciples. On the screen, I want you to think about this, because I know that what we do sometimes when we read through the scriptures, if you're anything like me, I hope you're not totally like me, I stop and I think, is this something I could do? Is this something I could do? If I encountered a person that manifested a demon, could I do what the disciples appeared to experience successfully multiple times? Could I do that? And I want you to think about this. God's empowering is present when you need it. As God sends you into this world, his empowering, his authority is with you when you need it. I was careful to say that the disciples would deal with these demonic spirits as they encountered them, as they encountered them as they were ministering to the people. I was also careful to say they didn't go looking for them. Verse 14, it says, And when they came to the disciples, that is, when Jesus, Peter, James, and John, those who had been on the mountain, those who had witnessed the transfiguration of Christ, even, even then we saw that as they were descending the mountain, there was a discussion as to what Jesus meant by the resurrection. As Jesus would begin to talk about going to Jerusalem, being betrayed by a friend, being tried, being crucified, and then rising, raising on the third day. Remember I told you at that time that the Jews believed that there was one resurrection at the conclusion of the age. The other thing they talked about was the coming of Elijah. Well, now they're at the bottom of the hill. Now that they're at the bottom of the mountain. And they, they arrive to the remaining nine disciples. But something was going on here. For you see, they came upon a large group. This wasn't uncommon for Jesus, but they came upon a large group that had gathered around the disciples. And we're told that the scribes, the experts in the law, criticized the disciples' inability to help the boy. They were criticizing their inability. And I believe that part of the reason is because they associated, they associated their the disciples' powerlessness with Jesus. Wrongfully so. In verse 16, Jesus questions the scribes. What are you arguing about with them? The word arguing can mean to dispute or to discuss. And, and, and as he's waiting for an answer, the father of the boy answers on their behalf. In verse 17, where, where, he says, where he says to Jesus, he, speaking of his son, he has a spirit that makes him mute or unable to speak. This was the boy's condition continually. We'll see that there were times when the spirit came upon him and, and, and tormented him, but because of the spirit, the boy was unable to speak. If you look down, and we'll get to verse 25 in a moment, Jesus calls the demon a mute and deaf spirit. That is, that the spirit in this boy's life hindered him not only from speaking, but also, but also from hearing. I want you to, to see in verse 18 where it says, whenever it seizes, seizes him or takes control of him, 
What does it do? It throws him down. It casts him down. The boy foams and grinds his teeth. And then his whole body becomes rigid or stiff. This is physical torment that's experienced at the hands of a spiritual being. Physical torment at the hands of a spiritual being intent on destroying the boy. I want you to remember from Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, that Jesus healed a mute man. The language there describes somebody whose tongue could not work. It was, there was some kind of an impediment. It's not that he couldn't make noise, he couldn't articulate words. I want to be clear, that is not the case here. This boy's condition is the result of, again, verse 25, an unclean spirit. We live in a world that is influenced like the currents in the sea, like the wind currents around us. In the spiritual realm, we are surrounded by these unclean spirits. And in some cases, they're very sad situations. There are individuals, there are people for a variety of reasons that these demons take root, take hold, and torment oppress. Some would say, well, Danny, his situation that you're describing here resembles a seizure, but there's more going on than a neurological disorder. The cause here is spiritual. On the screen, you're going to see maybe an oversimplification of what I'm trying to tell you, is what we need to remember when we encounter situations that we need wisdom. Not everything, not the cause of everything we see is spiritual. Equally so, not everything is physical. And in some cases, maybe just to confuse you, it's a blending of the two. There are physical challenges as well as spiritual challenges. There can be emotional challenges. There can be psychological challenges. When you're ministering to somebody in this condition, it means that you will walk with them for a period of time, getting to know them, honoring them as individuals, and dealing with the spiritual in a spiritual manner, as Jesus gives us an example here, but then walking with them as they deal with the condition in other manners. So we see here that the disciples fail. That's the problem. I ask your disciples to cast it, the spirit, out, and they were not able. They were unable to do what they had clearly done before. There's something going on here that's different than any other situation that they experienced to this time. Well, Danny, what happened? Well, we have the answer to, the, to that question in the story. Where Jesus says in verse 29, this kind, this kind of demon, cannot be driven out by anything other than prayer. And some of your Bibles will say prayer and fasting. The reason fasting is included in, in some Bibles and not in the others is because in the most early manuscripts it's not present. But it, many Bible uh, teachers feel comfortable adding it. But let me just say this for a moment. When we talk about desperate prayer, 
It means that we come to Jesus, we come to God through the Son in a prayer that reveals our dependence upon Him. This kind, this kind of situation can only be dealt with through prayer. I would imagine that the disciples, again, following Jesus' example, previously had come to these, these kinds of situations and simply spoke in the name of Jesus and that the spiritual entity, the Spirit, would obey. But not so here. This required, this situation required time and dependency upon Christ. It was different. I think you and I need to learn that not every situation's the same. You know, when people come to the office, it's a temptation to deal with every relational problem the same way that we dealt with previous relational problems. Instead of stopping and asking God prior to the appointment, prior to the meeting, God, give me your wisdom. Don't let me get into a rut. Don't let me depend upon my previous experience. Like we do in so many things in our lives, you know, whether it's parenting or working, we can lean upon our experience, what we've done before, how we've learned before. But in the Christian life, especially in ministry, we need to develop an ear to hear what God says in each situation, even though they look similar, even though they look very much alike. This kind, Jesus said, comes out with prayer. It's important to remember that the disciples were still being trained to carry on Jesus' ministry after he was gone. You and I may look at this and say, well, you know, this is something that's wrong with them. I think we should be humble enough to say that this is something that's wrong with us, with us, that we can learn as well. But they are being prepared for that moment that Jesus is no longer with them. They are being prepared for that moment when he ascends to the right hand of the Father. But please hear me on this. Return to the right hand of the Father for the purpose of sending the Spirit to come and indwell them. They are being trained. They are being prepared. God bless you. This is a lesson for us. In his book, Alistair Begg writes, the book is made for his pleasure. This should be on the screen. The truth is that more spiritual progress is made through failure and tears than success and laughter. We learn. You and I have the opportunity to learn from the disciples' uh, inability to help this man. You and I learn to depend upon the Lord through circumstances that don't turn out the way that we had hoped. As before we move on to our next section, the plea in verses 19 through 24, I want you to listen to an excerpt from a book by Tyler Statton, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools where he says, the aim of prayer is not to get God in on what I think he should be doing. Rather, the aim of prayer is to get us in on what God is doing, become aware of it, join in, and enjoy the fruit of participation. Prayer is to align us with God. Let's go ahead and read in verse 19. And he, Jesus, answered them. So he hears the problem from the Father of the boy. 
And he turns to all who were present and he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Bring him to me. Isn't that what we're to do? Bring him to Jesus. Bring that situation. Bring that individual. Well, Danny, I've been praying for this individual for a long time. Bring him to Jesus again and again and again. Bring him to Jesus. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood or since he was small. And it has often, often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Again, its intent is to kill him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The father is directly connected to the boy's suffering. The father is directly connected to the torment that the boy is experiencing. He so much loves his son that when he sees his son suffer, he suffers. And this is the heart of a parent. When our children suffer, we suffer. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, this is a bit of a rebuke, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, I do believe in you, Jesus. I do bring him to you. Help my unbelief. In verse 19, Jesus uses the words faithless generation to describe everybody that's present, the disciples, the critical scribes, as well as the crowd. The father of the boy appears to be the only person who is willing to admit that he has imperfect faith. I want you to see the power of that. His ability to say, help my imperfect faith. I believe, but help me. Help me. This is desperate worship. This is the essence of the story from a human standpoint. That we would come to Jesus without the re religious words, without the, the Christian terminology, and we would, in all honesty, say, Jesus, I can't do anything about this. You please help me. But Danny, does that mean I always get the answer to my prayer? Absolutely not. It means that when we are transparent and honest with Christ, that we have opened the door for him to come in. Listen to do what it is his will to do in this situation. We open the door when we're honest, when we strip away, excuse me for being so adamant about this, the Christian veneer, the expected Christian terminology, and we say, help me, help me. We open the door for Christ to step in and do his will. Because if he is Lord, if he is Lord, my friends, if he is our Lord and our Savior, what we ultimately want is his will in this situation. Jesus' words are a bit filled with a bit of frustration. Why? 
Because at this point in his ministry, he expects to see faith. He's over two and a half years into working with the disciples, and he's frustrated. He's frustrated at their inability. He's not angry at them, but he would desire that at this point they would have faith. He's certainly not frustrated with the scribes, except that they are continually badgering him. And the crowds, why the crowds, they come and go. But Jesus expects for faith to grow, for faith to be purified, for faith to be strengthened. Ben Patterson, in his book, Waiting, Finding Hope When God Seems Silent, the quote should be on the screen. The fountain or the wellspring of faith is a firm conviction regarding three things about God. Listen to this. The three things are his perfect love. Faith believes that God loves us perfectly. The second thing is wisdom. So God's love, God's wisdom, and God's power. Like a three-legged stool, no combination of the two will do. There must be all three for faith to stand. A strong belief A strong faith believes that God's wills wills only the best for us because he loves us, that he knows what's best for us, his wisdom, and that he is able to do what is best for us, his power. And this is what is being worked out in our lives. Again, the Father's plea in verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus replies by saying, what do you mean if you can? Why do you question my ability? All things are possible for one who believes. And Jesus refuses to allow this moment to pass by. We could could see Jesus heal and heal and heal. Deliver and deliver and deliver. And preach and proclaim the gospel. But I want you to see that he stops in order to engage in this man, to meet him where he's at. And that's what he's doing with us tonight. He meets us where we're at, and he guides us, he challenges us in the development of our faith because he loves us. He just doesn't give us what we want when we ask for it, although I'd certainly be happy if that were the case. He can't. He can't give us what we want when we ask for it because he has a desire for something that is deeper, something that is more beneficial for us. I oftentimes have told you the trial has a beginning. The trial will have an end. But the faith that's that's developed through through the course of the trial, through the difficulty, will last for all of eternity. Your faith will be rewarded one day because Jesus took the time to engage you as you prayed and asked for help he stopped and he engaged you and walked with you and developed your faith and my friends for all of eternity although the trial will become ancient history it will be a testament to what Christ has done in your life and in my life please hear that tonight In verse 25 through 27, we're almost done. We see the power. 
And when Jesus saw the crowd came, uh, saw a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, "You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again." And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, that is the spirit to the boy, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, "He is dead." That is the conclusion of the crowd. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. Just closing thoughts here. Mark's mention of the crowd rushing to, toward Jesus suggests that he had pulled the father and the boy aside. Why do you bring that up, Danny? Because Jesus is honoring the dignity of the boy. This isn't a show. This isn't entertainment. Jesus cares about the boy in this condition, and he pulls him aside. He interviews the father for information, and he ministers to the boy at the point of the need. After engaging the father on his faith and developing his faith, but then as Jesus sees the crowd hurrying in their direction, he commands the spirit. This is military uh, terminology. I command you to come out of him. I want you to know tonight that demons are rebellious. They're hostile to God. They're hostile to His people, to God's plan and purpose. Jesus commands the demon with perfect authority. Now I'm going to say something right now. This is the same authority as given to you tonight. This is the same authority that He gives to the church. The same authority Jesus has delegated to you and I. The deliverance rendered the boy physically exhausted, but it also rendered him free, liberated. And I want you to see Jesus's tender care in helping the boy off the ground. He just didn't move on to the next ministry opportunity. Just didn't move on to the next individual. He stops what he's doing to li physically lift the boy from the ground. Again, there's dignity being shown to one who was created in the image of God. Then, lastly, we have in verse 28 and 29, and we close with this, as we see the plan. So now, far away from the crowds, it says, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. Again, this is an opportunity for their training. Why could we not cast it out? Why were we unable? Why were we powerless? Why were we not able to do what we had done before? Jesus, remember when we came back to you and said, "Even the demons, even the demons, obey us." Why was today different? Jesus tells them, "This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer." I want you to know tonight, and as we before we take communion, that prayer works. It works in situations, but more deeply in us. It transforms our soul. It prepares us to be used by God. In, in a matter of fact, intimacy with God calibrates our hearts. I believe that we are vulnerable to power. That, that we're vulnerable to 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 power working in us and through us. And so, then prayer is an act of humility that prepares us to be used by God. Proverbs 11:2. The great, the wise king says, "When pride comes, then comes disgrace, 
but with the humble is wisdom. So as we pray, as we express desperate worship again and again and again and again, our hearts are changed and transformed. Circumstances and situations will change according to God's timetable and according to God's purpose. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.